prayed and I said, God, what do you want me to do with my life? And I meant it. What do you want me to do with my life? So it was more than just a, what do you want me to do about this fight? It was, yeah. what is my future? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I was like, well, if I can't fight, what do I do? Like, lead me to something. Like, show me something. So it's great to be here with you, Justin. Um, thank you for being here, for joining me. Yeah. Um, I'm excited about this conversation today. <clears throat> you and I have known one another for, I don't know, three or four years. Yeah. And there's a, a word that comes to mind when I think about you. And that word is resilience. Mm. And um, I'm really thankful to be able to have this conversation today. Um, I, if you do just a second and, and introduce yourself, uh, if you would, and then, uh, then I've got a, a question for you. Yeah. So uh, I think it's awesome that you said a word you think of when you think of me as resilient, because there's three things I try to say about myself and, and two of them I hear from people when they think of a word, they think of this. And what I, every morning I try to tell myself that I am compassionate, I am ambitious and I am resilient. And so when I meet people, they'll refer to the compassion side of me with, uh, the nonprofit starting that. And then another one people refer to as, uh, resilient and overcome a lot of, uh, tough things in my life from growing up being bullied after that, depression, suicidal ideation, then becoming uh, an addict and going through addiction because of a lot of the childhood trauma. Um, you work in a hope-centered uh, service job. I, I mean, where you're serving people um, and you really want to make impact, but a lot of those people go through very massive traumas. Um, a lot of the people who are called to this work have gone through those same traumas and that's why they have that compassion and they've had resilience to overcome. And so now they're trying to help someone else overcome. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm a professional MMA fighter for 14 years before that I was a wrestler, uh, in Texas. Um, Oklahoma has been home for me for, uh, quite some time, but I've moved back to Austin. I'm splitting time between Austin and here in Oklahoma city. But um, I was a 10-time state champion in Texas wrestling, a five-time All-American, a two-time national champion. And I was the youngest heavyweight in the UFC, so I was the youngest guy at the highest level. Um, and yeah, I lived at the Olympic Training Center, went to Iowa State for a year. I've wrestled in Moscow, kickbox in Amsterdam, been the main event at the Hard Rock in Las Vegas. Uh, I started a nonprofit 10 years ago. Uh, we do all sorts of stuff, but we... We, it's called Fight for the Forgotten, and so we really have a heart um, to help people defeat hate with love. Um, the most oppressed people will, will go there. Um, they've become family of mine. It's the Mabuti Pygmy people in Congo, the F.A. Pygmy people in Congo, and the Batwa Pygmy people in Rwanda. And we're going to expand to Rwanda, Central African Republic, a few other nations. And, yeah, um, so that's been 10 years of kind of promise. The first thing I promised him was that we'd help him have a voice. Um, I didn't think being a fighter, I could help him with land or water or food. Uh, but we, we help stateside too with like some bullying prevention and are getting into suicide prevention. I'm a two time suicide survivor, I would say. And, uh, I've also lost two dear friends this year, uh, that have died by suicide, lost their lives to it. And so we want to help people going through that here stateside. So yeah, I've got to write a book. I got to, um, uh, have a Ted talk I did in London. Um, I've been in a documentary climbing Mount Kilimanjaro with some NFL players and, uh, military veterans. And we're filming a docu series right now with Joe Rogan's people, um, that do his comedy specials, his podcast, all the UFC documentaries. And yeah, they're, they're doing a, one of my life story in those topics. Um, and, yeah, Joe Rogan's a donor, Dana White's a donor, uh, Khabib Nurmagomedov, Dustin Poirier, Manny Pacquiao, some really incredible people have come along and joined this journey, and I've been able to document it on Joe Rogan's podcast the last, like, nine years, and so, or ten years. It's It's been really great. I'm starting my own podcast, so it's going to be called Overcome with Justin Wren. We're going to have a lot of different people, from Harvard professors to world champion surfers, Olympic gold medalist, uh, but really it's going to be about a lot of philanthropy. So philanthropists that have helped over people overcome or medical experts that help people overcome depression, suicide, or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a lot and I'm, I just turned 34 and, uh, and there's a lot more to do. The Incredible. work is never done. Incredible. I love uh, it. Thank you thanks. for that. Um, yeah. 
we talk about, you talk about overcoming. And really that's the, the sort of conversation, the discussion I'd like to dig into a oh, little great. bit today. So yeah. um, I, I use the word resilience to define you. And I, I think that it's important to frame the conversation yeah. with the work that we're trying to do here yeah, at the absolutely. Department of Human Services. We serve, this year will be about a third of the state's population wow. will come through our agency. One and third. One third, about a million and a half Oklahomans. Wow. And just by virtue of the fact that the way that we serve those folks, uh, we know that they have experienced significant trauma yeah. in their lives. So these are families and kids who are engaged in the child welfare system. These are people who are currently experiencing homelessness and hunger uh, through uh, the social safety net programs that we operate. We treat or serve uh, the most uh, vulnerable seniors uh, as we run adult protective services where we investigate more than 20,000 cases of senior abuse, neglect, and exploitation every year. So uh, the work that we do um, carries with it significant trauma. And I talk a lot about that with our workforce, but really what I want to highlight and try to understand, because I'm fascinated by this, is people, individuals who have overcome mm. incredible adversity. And so what I'd love for you to do is um, you and I are friends. And yeah. so I know your story mm -hmm. because I know it um, personally, not right. just reading in your book, which is yeah. incredible and uh, engaging with your Ted talk, but your personal story. And I, I think that we can learn as an organization, a lot from individual people who have overcome adversity. So can I ask you to take us back a little bit to your childhood? Yeah. Uh, because to me that. Um, there is there is trauma there mm -hmm. that can allow for us to learn from because you have been so strong in overcoming that in so many spaces. So your childhood, you know, yeah. tell us about growing up and and um, and we'll relate that to the future. Yeah, um, you know, I think it's I, I think when you were asking this question and you're framing it towards me, and then I started relating it towards you, and even Ryan and some of our friends uh, that you got to get together with last night. A lot of them are business owners or they've started something and they're leading something. I've never made this correlation, but growing up, I've, I've I had my whole family, mom and dad's side, everyone owned their own business. They all worked for themselves and they all led something. And so I always wanted to do something like that. And so growing up, even in elementary, middle and high school, I'd always have a new business idea and I want to do this. I want to do that. And then I just threw myself at wrestling, fighting and I did that. Then I thought I would start a gym or uh, some sort of like MMA clothing line or something like a, a business. But everything changed and I started a nonprofit at 23 years old. And man, I, I'm so glad I got into the nonprofit young because and I'm making a correlation. That I don't even know that's going to translate over well to the, the, the listeners, but I hope it does. I, I'm so glad at 23 I'd had the experiences I had, like competing at a top level, state champion, All-American, national champion, that I've had a lot of opportunities, wrestling at Madison Square Gardens. I mean, just different stuff like that, main event at the Hard Rock in Vegas. To see that, like, I think it's a Jim, Qu uh, Jim Carrey quote that says, I wish everyone could experience having uh, fame and money and uh, having fame, money, and, and, and other things, you know, material objects, mm -hmm. just so everyone can know that that's not where you find happiness. That's not where you find significance. Like, that's not where you find meaning. And I was like, wow, you know, because I experienced at a young age that then when I did start something, it had to be something of purpose. It had to be something that mattered. I mean, I think everyone's job matters for sure, but there's like varying degrees of that. If you're doing something where you don't see that it makes a difference. Um, I think it's hard, but what's really cool about your job, everyone here at the Oklahoma Department of Human Services, no matter what they're doing, if they're on the front lines, face to face with the person they're serving, or if they're in a support role capacity here, I mean, Eric supports you in such an incredible way. And because of that, like so much gets done for other people. So I think just having a job where you can line it up. So basically growing up, you asked, what I went through, I went through bullying from third to eighth grade. And I think that's where my heart uh, connects to the most bullied people group in the world mm. or oppressed people group. Um, and if I could rise above it eventually, and I could then go out and help others rise above it, you know, from what I felt 
Um, you know, it was very empowering to find fighting. Although I went to fighting for a different identity, purpose, and I thought that's where everything I would find fulfillment, and it wasn't. But I knew that if I could do that, then I could translate into that into other things. Like I used it for myself. Now, so you knew at an early, at a young age that that getting into fighting mm-hmm. may give you a pathway somewhere else. Yeah, 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 for sure. Great, and it has. Um, and that's what I think anyone can do with whatever platform they have is once you establish yourself in one thing, it opens up doors elsewhere. I mean, just because I'm a professional athlete, it's gotten me on TV shows, uh, into schools, churches, different places like speak businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing your heart, um, to connect back to that Jim Carrey quote yeah. is you're not there for the fame and the power and the money and all of those things. Yeah. Truly, I know you and I know that the purpose behind being on Joe Rogan's podcast mm-hmm. nine times mm-hmm. at this point is truly to share the mission yeah. of Fight for the Forgotten and to to protect people who need your protection. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been able to, you know, I, we've been around for 10 years and it took us a little while, three or four years, to really establish an, a foundation to where we can start accomplishing things. The first few years, we didn't see a ton of impact. And I could have given up. I could have quit because I'm like, ooh, this takes a long time. It's hard. That's why I decided to go live there for a year in the rainforest because I was like, I'm losing momentum every time I come back to the U.S. And to really train the locals to where they can champion this for themselves, it can't be dependent on me coming – like can't be dependent on me living there, but also can't be dependent on me having to keep coming back. Um, and so I thought we really got to train the locals and empower them, educate them with the knowledge, equip them with the tools, empower them in their own culture because they know their, or their own community because they know their own culture better than I do. What's going to be sustainable. Um, and so that's, what's I guess been really great about, I don't know, starting small, but then letting it expand because, uh, our first goal at like year three was to do two water wells on 30 acres of land that we'd Mm. be, we'd buy back for them. And then by year, like four or five, we had 13 wells on like, you know, 2000 acres of land. And then, uh, uh, you know, I'd seen like 1500 people literally transition out of slavery and into freedom, which was mind-blowing. Um, four sustainable farms started up, 4,000 mahogany and eucalyptus trees replanted, uh, and it just snowballed. Right now, you know, I, if I, if I would have thought and put the weight of, like, everything we've done on me so far on, on like, year two or three. Yeah, the, the 28-year-old Justin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah saying that you're, you're going to be building 32 new homes and a pharmacy and a medical clinic right now. Wow. Uh, on new land in a new country. I would be like, what? No way. There's no, it's not possible. Um, but now we've got, you know, over 3,000 acres of land, over 73 wells, uh, you know, building schools. I mean, like stuff that I was like, what? Like, didn't think possible. So bring the listeners back to who the people are Mm. that you are. So the foundation is called Fight for the Forgotten. Um, Who who are you fighting for? Tell us about them. The most oppressed people group in the world, according to anthropologists, are the pygmy people. And where are are in the Congo Basin rainforest, which expands across eight or nine African nations. Uh, Countries like... Congo, the Republic of Congo, then the one I lived in, the Democratic Republic of Congo, mm-hmm. Cameroon, Gabon, Central African Republic, Burundi, Rwanda, uh, Uganda, and did I say Central African Republic? Yeah, um, so. Okay. So those nations have uh, different tribes of the pygmies. There's the Efe, the Batwa, the Mabuti, the... Twa, the Baka, the Aka, the Bayaka, um, but they, they're all around four foot six on average for the men, four foot six, mm. four foot seven. And in most of those countries, none of them have owned a single home, like a, 
like that's not twigs and leaves or at the very best, like a mud hut. And so I lived in a twig and leaf hut for a year. I've, I've lived there almost two years and how far, how many times I've gone back and forth in the last 10 years and then slept on the dirt as my bed. The fire was my blanket. The twig and leaves were like the walls and ceiling, but it's a dome that's over you. And it's only about four to five foot tall. So you just go in there to sleep. Mm. Um, and they used to live separately, uh, from their neighbors and they were very separate. And then people came in there for firewood and they would clear trees to sell for firewood. And then they would replant on the, that land and they would grow like, uh, beans or potatoes, something like that. But the pygmies would have a symbiotic relationship with them eventually when they got closer to them because those guys would want to trade peanuts, potatoes, corn for bush meat. Mm. But the pygmies had almost the upper hand or the the strength and the bartering because they have wild game and rare fruits and vegetables gathered from the forest. Uh, and these other ones just had corn and beans, you know. And so they were they were trading the, but as they continued to illegally log and when chainsaws came into the picture, that started scaring the animals, uh, making them scared and skittish and falling down. And it was like, uh, I've been there before where you can see the sun and uh, there's not a cloud in the sky, but you can barely see that through the, the canopy. And then it starts sounding like thunder every now and then. Like, what is the sound of thunder? It's the, there's, there's no clouds. Um, it's not raining and it would be trees that you could probably drive a Mack truck through that are falling. And those trees are so big, so tall. I mean, like 200 feet tall, literally wider than a truck. And when those things fall and they hit other trees and they slam on the ground, it literally sounds like thunder roaring through the forest. Um, so that is a reason that the pygmies were made more vulnerable because now they had to hunt for themselves and not be able to trade and so then once it was very hard for them to even provide for themselves, now they're in a very weakened position. Uh, the tribes around them would say that they bought the land that they live on, that now they're their masters. They have to leave the land or they can stay and, and work for them and they'll feed them. Um, sometimes they tie them up in ropes and chains and beat them. And uh, it's brutal. Other times it's more like indentured servitude where if you're going to live here, We'll give you scraps, but you got to work from sun up to sundown, and it's it's slavery. Yeah. Also, stories of um, essentially massacring mm. um, the pygmies that you've shared with with me before. Yeah. There's the Cobra Matata, which is a rebel group, but the the one that I was around was Mai Mai, the Mai Mai, led by a not Captain Morgan, but it was like Colonel Morgan or something like that. Captain He's, Morgan is different. Yeah, yeah, yeah different. But um, they're I, I saw them, not, I didn't see them kill him, but I saw them drag his body behind a truck, um, the rebel leader. But he was a very, very brutal man. He ate people, literally would, they would hunt, kill, cook, and eat people. And they did that against the pygmies that I had lived with. Mm -hmm. um, there was like 34 confirmed counts of cannibalism against the pygmy people there. And didn't you say that, uh, or I've heard you say before, that, um, that the witch doctors in the area mm -hmm. <clears throat> would... Well, they'll, they'll just say that if you can consume pygmy flesh before war, that um, the rebels now become invincible. Well, they they become not bulletproof, but where bullets fly right through them. Um, and it's a ridiculous belief, but mm -hmm. they get them believing it, and they're on hard drugs. They force kids on hard drugs so they can kill families or villages they used to know um, and not have so much guilt. And so when Morgan was pushed out with the Mai Mai out of the... Their gold mine that they controlled in the area, um, they went through the Okapi or Okapi um, National Preserve, which is like this endangered animal. It's got the butt of a or a head of a giraffe, butt of a zebra, body of like a big antelope or moose or elk or something. And they just went through there, and there was like maybe two hundred of them that like live on that preserve, and there's like less than a thousand in the world, and they just like slaughter them. They just mm. shoot them with machine guns. Uh, so anyways, it's pretty crazy. And my introduction to the water crisis was holding a little boy named Andy Bo. And uh, I was cuffing the back of his head and holding his little hand and he took his last breath and blood came out of his ears on my hands. His mom, 
she was in such shock she couldn't even cry even a little bit I was crying she wasn't and I was trying to hold back my tears and I was just blown away and when we got her fed because I could see every rib in her sternum and her side like she was sitting there topless and she was just starving starving she looked like a skeleton with skin on mm. and so we went and got her some fish potatoes sweet like a sweet potato which are yellow not orange there and um and some mango and we fed her and it wasn't five minutes later five minutes later maybe 10 that she was able to start weeping so i asked what was going on like why she could she why could she cry now well it was because she actually had sustenance she had the energy to cry before it wasn't just shock it was also she was so depleted she was so dehydrated she was so hungry that her tear ducts wouldn't produce tears. So it wasn't until we got her hydrated with some water, some juice, and things like that, that she could even mourn for her child. And her child died because of... Waterborne disease. Waterborne disease. Yeah, and I, his name was Andy Bo. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the first chapter of my book. And being introduced to water crisis was like harder than any punch in the mouth I've ever taken. You know, like it was like I was smacked upside the head, but I wasn't expecting it because I didn't know it even existed. And so it was just a, like getting blindsided, but then like realizing I have a platform where I can share this with the world. And if we had like one-tenth of the focus we've had on COVID and this getting a vaccine, if we spent like one-tenth of money, one-tenth of the focus, like, like I think we would sur- solve the water crisis in a year or two worldwide. Mm. And there's like a billion people that don't have clean water, 785 million. It's like we literally could do it if people just had a focus like we did on on COVID. And I, I don't know how to do that. Like there's a – it seems like a few people that have like a platform that are actually talking about the water crisis. But you turn on the news and three out of five – three or four out of five news stories you're going to hear about COVID. And so if we just have one, one a day, you know, like it would be – It'd be incredible because we could we could end this thing. And so, Fight for the Forgotten was mm-hmm. founded uh, yeah. to solve the international water crisis. Yeah. Can you can you tell us about? Uh, you've mentioned some of the progress made so far, yeah. but you know specifically, how did you get started? What did you do? Yeah, uh, those stories are are incredible. I was I was trying to dig. I went to howtodrillyourownwell.org. <laughs> and how to I'm, drill a well for dummies? Huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah there's actually a website. Uh, I okay. think it's called how to drill your well.org. Yep. And, and they're not a sponsor, I assume. No, they're no. not a sponsor. Okay. And uh, they're not they're not for drinking wells. They're oh, for okay. like irrigation wells. <laughs> okay. Uh maybe maybe in a survivor situation, but you for survival. Uh you have to you have to have a water hose that turns on. And that's uh That's tough to do when you don't have water. Yes, yeah, so, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it'll work here. Okay. If you want me to drill you a well outside, <laughs> I'll turn on the, the hose and the hose. you'll get there. Yeah. yeah. And I need a truck that I can stand on the back of its tailgate. Mm. And I uh, I got equipment from uh, Home Depot and Lowe's, and I was trying to dig a well in my, my parents' backyard. Okay. Uh, dot work. And I, uh, I, everything was breaking. It wasn't working. And I finally call a friend that's in construction, and I say, bro, I I don't think I can do this. I got to give up on this water well thing unless like there's another solution. He goes, yeah, man, you're trying to dig in like the Texas red dirt, like sandstone with like PVC pipe that you sharpened at the ends. He's like, it's not going to work. I was like, oh, why didn't you tell me that sooner? He goes, because you need a water hose. Like, how are you going to do that out there? And I'm like, why didn't you tell me that sooner? <laughs> I'm wasting my time. But what was funny was he was up here because there was tornadoes in Oklahoma City. And so this woman, Marvin, or sorry, Mary Sue and her husband, Marvin. So they're, I need to check and see if they're, they're doing all right. They're, they're in their nineties. Oh, wow. So, uh, they heard me talking to my friend Jeff, but it was from Jeff's side. Right after that, they told him about a man named Steve, uh, Stewart. Steve Stewart had just recreated a Leonardo da Vinci drawing. And uh, not recreated, he brought it to life. He found the missing piece that was on the sketch. So no, even Leonardo didn't make it yet. 
So, and it was a water raising device that he had transformed over like 4,000 African villages with. And uh, she tells him the story. All of a sudden, he tells me. Then I find his website, and he had a team. I'm, I emailed every single one of them. I'm coming up tomorrow. Can, can you meet with me? Uh, and I drove up here, and he trained me for five hours. They gave me like $15,000 worth of well drilling equipment. I said, I'm going to go live there for a year. And they're like, you're taking this serious? And then I was like, yeah. So I went. Everything was failing in the rainforest because it was different than Oklahoma geology. It was Congo geology, and everything was a collapsing zone because there's so much water. It's so moist. Sure. So it's different than the dry ground here. And so a guy from Uganda came and lived with me for three months. He's our team leader in Uganda. And he taught me how to drill wells. And he risked his life. He almost got killed the first day he was there by Congolese who don't like Ugandans. He, uh, We got in an accident and a woman died. It wasn't him driving. It was a taxi driver. But the taxi driver ran. And so they wanted mob justice. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to set a tire around him and set the tire on fire. But he was hidden by a a woman there that gave him shelter because she knew he was about to die. And uh, then they looted the truck or the car and they set it on fire. And uh, so there's been some like wild situations there. But, um, you know, I went to drill the wells and they adopted me and his family. They called me Efeosa Mabutimangbo. And so Efeosa means the man who loves us. Mabutimangbo means the big pygmy. And uh, I love that. Um, I changed my name. If someone watches the video of this, they'll see that I look like a Viking. And mm-hmm. that was my fight name. Uh, that was my Instagram handle. That was everything. Now it's the big pygmy. So I changed it to that because uh, the chief said, we don't have a voice. Can you help us have one? Everyone else calls us the forest people, or but we call ourselves the forgotten people. Um, and when we said we don't have a voice, can you help us have one? I just felt like I, I said yes because I couldn't promise land, water, food, but I knew I could do that. But it was like I, I might have said yes, but it was like my soul like screamed yes or something, mm-hmm. like we're going to do this. The so first thing I did when I got home was change my – Instagram handle to the big pygmy and people didn't know what it meant. People didn't know how to find me. I went on Joe's show and Joe's like, are you sure you want to change it to that? You know, like people don't even know how to spell pygmy. They do P I G instead of P Y G. And, uh, so like, yeah, I want to do that. And because people ask, who are they? What is that? And I had to tell their story. Yeah. The perfect reason. Yeah. So how did you come to find the, the pygmy people? Did yeah. you, sort of grew up knowing about the, their plight and where they were. Yeah. Um, no, I, I never even heard of them Yeah, until uh, I was 23. So there's a lot of uh, almost pop, not pop culture, but there's, there's things that involve the pygmies that I never really knew about. Like there's like a cartoon that does, there's like some Disney something, there's uh so they're almost like references yeah 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 but, but never like, really okay they, a name. yeah a lot of it wasn't politically correct with sure uh charlie and the chocolate factory what is that called yeah uh, willy, wonka, willy wonka yeah okay willy wonka uh in the book the original book uh the oompa loompas were pygmies no uh, yeah, they were African slaves in the chocolate factory, no idea. being slaves for chocolate, which is actually true in the world. Like so much chocolate, the cacao. Uh, there's pygmies in the Congo Harvested that are by slaves. Yeah, wow. Yeah, pygmies in the Congo are slaves for no for chocolate. Yeah, there's a guy that uh, a slave master there that I almost nicknamed Willy Wonka because he he's uh, but he, it's weird. He's he's actually a nice guy, and he treats them not like the other slave masters do. He's like a businessman and kind of, kind of sort of gives him a job, but really it's, it's, uh, it's been beneath what the normal person is. So anyways, I, yeah, other people were like, Oh, you didn't hear this. You didn't hear that. And so now that I've lived with the pygmies adopted in with them, like people send me stuff uh, all the time about like this and that, like uh, James Jameson. Do you know this story? No, it's terrible. But uh, James Jameson from Jameson whiskey he went down, he died of malaria in Congo. Uh, while he was there, he went to a cannibalistic tribe and he got out like an easel and canvas and painted that tribe cannibalizing the pygmies. He even paid them to do it. Uh, like really horrific mm. stuff. 
Um, and so anyways, I was, I was knew nothing about the pygmies. I didn't know where the Congo was. I didn't know that there was a rainforest in Africa. I thought it was South America and, and like China or Thailand or India. I thought that that's where rainforest is. I just didn't know. I wasn't educated on that. Just ignorant to it. So, uh, I was a year sober and I was working at the Denver Children's Hospital and the at-risk youth, uh, like a, a nonprofit there. Uh, I had kids living there. Uh, I was at the homeless shelter, the homeless rescue mission in, in Colorado. And I was just doing whatever I could do. And a year after stepping away from fighting on a winning streak, like no one knew why I stepped away. Everyone was wondering. I was being offered fights all the time. And I was just telling people, I'll let you know. I'll let you know when I want to fight. Uh, but then this fight in Japan came up, which I might be able to fight there this year. Uh, this year, 2021. Yeah, this year, right. 2021, I might be able to fight in Tokyo uh, in front of over 100,000 people on New Year's Eve. And so I was offered this fight about 11 years ago. And I said, I want it. It was an opponent that needed a last-minute change, or his opponent fell out. He called me and he was good at everything I was good at, but I was better at it. So I was like, this is perfect. It's not dangerous for me. Like this is, I'm going to outclass him. And, uh, so maybe the first round he might be a little tough, but I'm aware I'm out. And so, uh, I was really excited about it, but then something didn't sit right in my spirit. And to talk to a guy that was really influential in my life and he goes, Oh, well, this sounds great. You know, and I thought it was almost a reward for, uh, having sacrificed a year from fighting. Mm. Now the most pay comes around that I've ever been offered in front of the biggest arena I've ever fought in front of. Very special night. The fight I always wanted as a kid, and it's like a perfect matchup. I was like, yes, this is awesome. And I got, my friend goes, did you pray about it? And I said, no, I didn't pray about it. And he goes, you need to pray about it. And... So I like didn't for a couple of days. And then whenever I finally did, uh, I just felt like it was a no, like, uh, not yet. And I don't know what that means. Like, uh, he was kind of telling me, you don't think God will, will, uh, will answer your prayer. I was like, well, do you think he's just going to like open the clouds and talk to me? He goes, he goes, well, I don't think it really works that way, but he can if he wanted to. And so I just kind of opened my mind to like just being open He's like, don't don't go pray and just expect to hear something on one thing. Just go pray and be open and say, God, what do you want me to do? So I really did that. I really went and prayed and I said, God, what do you want me to do with my life? And I meant it. What do you want me to do with my life? So it was more than just a, what do you want me to do about this fight? It was, yeah. what is my future? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I was like, well, if I can't fight the thing, if I can't do the thing I want to do, I mean, I guess I can, but if I don't feel led to do that, like, what do I do? Like, lead me to something. Like, show me something. And uh, God, the creator, or source of life and love, like, showed me. Like, uh, open up my mind to new things. Yeah, open up my mind to new ways to be shown or told something somehow by, like, the one that, that, gave you or me breath. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a movie in my mind. It was like a vision, but it was every bit. The people I saw in the vision were every bit as real to me as you are to me. It wasn't just some like visualization in my head. Like yeah, a, you've done tons of visu- yeah, visualization. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. I lived at the Olympic training center and uh, they would have you go through it in your mind a hundred times, a thousand times before you ever go out on the mat to do it. If you've been watching game film or fight footage, if you've been creating a game plan, I mean, you are going to be walking through that, seeing your opponent, literally what the, they're wearing. You're going to feel the environment, hear the sounds of the crowd, hear your coaches. You're going to, like, see all that in your head. And then what moves, what setups, what punches, what takedowns, what submissions, like, you're going to link together in what we call chain wrestling or – um it's that human chess match, that strategy. And so but this, this, was, was different. this was way different because I didn't try to conjure anything up. I didn't even think about visualiz- visual- uh, visualizing. It just happened. And I was hit with a vision, like a download. And what was the vision? It was me in the rainforest 
somewhere in the world, but I was on a footpath that was barely wider than my foot. So it was a smaller footpath, um, but it was long and it was through the rainforest with like thickets and vines and I'm clearing those out of the way with my hands and I'm being like kind of taken to this place by some people and all of a sudden I come into a clearing well, as I'm walking up, I hear drumming, a very distinct drumming. And then I hear like a singing that's almost like a tribal tonal yodeling or something. Like, so like very unique, um, like chants. And I come into a clearing and I see these twig and leaf huts that are dome shaped that aren't like squared and no wood or tin roofs or anything, not even huts, I would say, or like homes, you know, uh, and I meet a person, I don't like talk to him, but I see him and we acknowledge each other and he's got his ribs poking out and he's like a skeleton with skin on, but he's coughing. It's not COVID. This is before that. I'm like, what is this? He's really sick. And I knew that he was sick and the people there were thirsty. They didn't have clean water, hungry, no good, like real source of food. Uh, I knew that they were oppressed and hated and uh, just looked down upon and that they were enslaved. I knew that they were enslaved and that they called someone master and that they called themselves the forgotten people, that they felt forgotten. I wrote that at the top of his paper, forgotten, and then right under it, thirsty, hungry, sick, poor, oppressed, enslaved. Um, and that's where the name Fight for the Forgotten came from was I had that vision, I wrote that down, I felt crazy for three full days, <laughs> absolutely crazy. Like, I, could, I didn't think I could tell anybody, you know, and uh thought it was really weird, but then whenever I finally told someone, uh, one, I'll, I'll fast forward, when I finally told someone, he he said, don't you, don't you know, like, God did this in the Bible, like, he, like, gave people visions and downloads and angels appeared to people and stuff like that. I was like, mm. okay, but I didn't never met anyone that talks about that. Like really here. I mean, certain ways, but yeah. So, but before that I tell him the vision and he's like tracking. Then all of a sudden he's almost kind of grinning and he's like nodding and I like kind of stop. And he goes, I know who they are. I go, what? He goes, I know who they are. And he said, they're the Mabuti Pygmy people. And I said, who? He said, they're in the Congo. And I'm like, where? And the reason I felt crazy for a few days was I thought about the rainforest and the people in my vision had dark skin. But I thought of like Brazil, Peru, India, uh, Thailand, uh, you know, places like that. Yeah, China, you were trying pandas. to place them. Yeah, and I, it but didn't make sense But then all of a sudden, this guy... This guy comes goes, into your life, and he's like, I know exactly who they are. Yeah, and I never knew him. I never yeah. met him. And But he was friends with Bear Grylls. He wrote like a survival book. He had been a humanitarian and a missionary and had lived with the Vanuatu tribe that invented bungee jumping with vines. He lived with the Maasai tribe that killed lions with spears. I have a lion or a spear that killed a lion, mm. two lions. Saw the mane, saw the tail uh, of the male and then the female. It's like, whoa. Um, or mane of the male, tail of the female and uh i was just like holy moly what is this so he tells me that he was asked the day before to cancel his trip his wife asked him to cancel his trip so this guy you dangerous. just met no, just met you just you tell him the vision yeah. he says he knows who the people are and by the way i'm supposed to I'm go supposed to go i was to just see asked them. to cancel the video so yesterday i posted on my instagram the big pygmy about a volcano that erupted in congo yep uh, volcanologist, I think is what they're called. They um, say that this is the most dangerous, one of the most active volcanoes in the world, but the most dangerous. Um, and I've been there. And anyways, where that is, the rebel groups have taken over the airport. Um, it's like 100,000 or more person town, city, and or it's a million and, like, at least 15 people died there yesterday. Mm -hmm. 25,000 people had to be evacuated um, or two days ago. And so, anyways, we're supposed to fly in there, but the rebels took over the airport. So he's like, I don't know how we're going to get there. We're going to have to find a pilot that will still go. 
And so uh, you meet this guy, you tell yeah. him the vision. He yeah. says he knows who they are, yeah. and he's going, and you jump in the plane. Yeah, well, pretty much. Pretty much. He said I need to come tell his wife the vision because he was leading a team of three people, three others, four people total, and they all backed out on him. The U.S. State Department said, no American for any reason, mm. go to Congo. You're on your own. And uh, we're not coming to get you, and we're not going to help. I'm going to ask, like, you're on your own. And uh, so I go tell his wife, and she's pregnant, and she has a baby in her arms, like a one-year-old or something, one and a half. And she looks at Caleb. Her name's Jessica. She puts her hand on his shoulder and goes, Caleb, you got to go. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wait, what? I don't even know if I want to go. Yeah. You were hoping she would bail you out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was like, we can do this later. You know, like, let me think about it. And I asked him, I go, what if I don't go? He goes, huh? He goes, if you don't go, you always wonder. You always wonder what what if. Mm. What, what could have, should have, would have happened. I almost remember not saying that to you whenever you were taking this position here. Mm. But I think you knew that part of the story, that. Caleb, because you said to the governor, if I say, yep. if you say no to me, I'll be all right. But if I say no to you, I'll always wonder. Yep. And that's what got me to say yes, uh, was that question. And Jess saying, you got to go. And I'm like, mm. oh, shoot. He really wants to go. Uh, and then we brought a friend named Colin with us. And we went and we took a bunch of planes. We landed on a grass runway with monkeys. And they were clearing the runway with machetes as we circled it, (laughs) like lots of people, like 30 people maybe with machetes because they were running late on, I guess, clearing the runway for us. They didn't know when the last time a plane landed there was. We get out, we ride a truck for six to eight hours. We get out, we ride motorcycles for an hour or two. We get out, we hike, we cross a river with pygmy dugout canoes. We hike for another 30 foot. No one knows how to swim and there's crocodiles and hippos in this river. And, and Caleb, Colin, and I are the ones that know how to swim, but we're like, I'm not a lifeguard, and there's crocodiles and hippos in this water. And uh, then we get across, and I didn't even really think about that until I was the first one across the river. Uh, I guess they wanted to see if the big guy would float or sink and if it's worth taking the other guys across. And uh, I get across, I walk for about another 30 minutes, and I literally think... Is, is this my vision? And then I hear drumming. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Then I hear singing. And it's that same tribal tonal singing. Come into a clearing. There's twig leaf huts. First guy I meet. I can see his ribs. He's starving. He's hungry. He's sick. He's coughing. He's got tuberculosis. He is the guy from the vision. And I don't just take a knee. I eventually take a knee, but I just fall kind of into a squat, a deep squat, elbows on my knees, hands on my face, looking out at the exact thing that I saw. And Caleb and Colin are grabbing my shoulders, like my traps from overhead. They're standing. I'm weak in the knees. And I have to take a knee. And they're like saying, Justin, this is your vision. This is your vision. Because I told him the vision. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa. What in the world? I was It was surreal. I was speechless. Uh, tears just started falling down my face. As I'm, as, as I'm like, have my hands on my chin, elbows in my knees, but still jaw dropped. Like I should have been like pushing my yeah, mouth sure. or wow. closed or whatever. But uh, So you knew at that point. I was called. That you were called to called. that work. Yeah. I'll it's, even share that overcoming, right? Overcome, being overcomers. That vision gave me so much strength that was almost supernatural uh, or is supernatural strength because not, not like actual physical strength, but strength to handle things that I would have not handled before Um, strength to handle malaria and have a different perspective. When my parents are calling, my mom's calling on Thanksgiving day saying, please come home. We know you're sick. We don't want you to die there and then be sending you back in a coffin. Please come home. And I could say no. I love you. I appreciate it. 
But this is just an opportunity for me to understand the suffering that they go through, the struggle that they have. If they can overcome this, I can overcome this. And why would I come home to a doctor that's never treated malaria before? Why wouldn't I stay here where these guys see it on a daily basis? I have a much better chance here with them than I do coming home and spending a lot of money and being in a ambulance evac to the United States uh, or, I mean, an airplane evac and to the United States with, with, with paramedics and an airplane that they've never treated malaria. So what am I going to do? Just vomit on the plane and mm-hmm. they hope that I survive by them giving me IVs. I'd rather have some malaria medication. And so, um, yeah, I had black water fever. I lost 33 pounds in five days. Uh, black water means my urine turned black, but I couldn't urinate for five full days. Uh, my kidneys and liver were failing. I had 65 to 70% of my bloodstream were parasites. And yeah, they couldn't get IVs in me because I was so dehydrated. My veins were collapsing and my peripheral vision disappeared. It was completely black. It was like a tunnel vision and my hearing sounded like a bee's nest or hive, like a honeybee hive in my ears. Both of them couldn't hear what you were saying because the bees were in my head. And, uh, and you know, that was scary to everyone around me. And me though, as at peace, I was like, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. If I go, I go. But if I stay, I, I learned something. Mm. And I overcame. And you stayed and committed yeah. your life to yeah. fighting for the forgotten. Absolutely. And so you have spent uh, the decade from then to now yep. in, um, in on a mission yeah. to solve uh, waterborne illness and, yeah. and water scarcity in the Congo and Uganda and, and in Africa for yeah. those tribes and those people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's almost been 11 years, almost. Amazing. Uh, yeah, a few months, August. Amazing. And so, but now you've gone beyond that. It's more than just water. Yeah. You talked earlier about uh, solving for food, helping mm-hmm. them to create a little bit of a micro economy where yeah, sure. they're now trading and bartering and, yeah, and really buy school clothes for their kids and send them to school and pay school fees to where they can't be denied because the school's saying, oh, you have to pay. Incredible. I'm saying, well, we don't, we can't pay. We don't have money. It's like, well, no, you do. So they can, uh, I was leaving the last time I was there. And I got in the car. The last time I was in Congo, <clears throat> it's the last trip. I just went to Uganda. But last trip to Congo, I'm there, and I'm with Chief Alondo. I'm with Florencine. I'm with uh, Andy Bo. Uh, not Andy Bo, the same one. There's another one. Um, and I'm just thinking, like, I need to uh, – I, I want to see Jippy. He's going to be chief one day. He's the chief's grandson. Chief's son died. His mom isn't going to be – chief so one day jippy will and i'm looking for jippy can't find him they're like we'll, we'll send him to you and i'm like send him to me uh if he comes he'll run through the forest you know barefoot probably shirtless whatever uh running through the trees and, and find me you know sometimes they're literally jumping from which is wild to see like they how good they are at climbing trees so anyways i get to the car walk to the roadside from the village it's like a 40 minute hike or something maybe less and I'm on the roadside, <clears throat> and I'm like, I mean, Jippy didn't, you know, he must not come home. Maybe he's out hunting, whatever. Get in the car, start driving away, and there's a medical clinic that we drilled a well for outside of that. And drive by that, look at the well, see if he's around the water well where some of the kids are. He's not. Keep driving. All of a sudden, we pass the school, drive past that, and I see in the rear view, I'm driving, see in the rear view that Jippy's running. He's running and he's waving. He had come out of the schoolhouse where he's got a school uniform on, crisp white shirt, beautiful blue pants, and shoes, and he's just booking it towards me. And I'm like, wait, what? Jippy's at school in a school uniform? He was the first pygmy kiddo uh, that was actually in school. And so he saw my truck drive by. He wanted to say bye. So he knew that whenever he saw me that he would run out there and stop me and say bye. But I was just able to stop him, run, give him a big hug, jump up in my arms, and he'd be like, "Oh my gosh, buddy, you're in school! You're mm. in school!" He's like, "Yeah, the the I'm going to be chief one day. I need school. I need education." So it's incredible! Like, wow. you so know, the like, work that you've changed. done over the last decade has provided mm. pathways for those people who yeah. are the most enslaved people in the world 
to be self-sufficient, to begin to engage Mm -hmm. um, in a greater purpose for their lives. Yeah, we want to see them representing themselves on a governmental level. They're the only tribe not represented in the Congo. Imagine that. Ten years ago when you first walked Mm -hmm. into that village, could you ever have imagined having the conversation about them with a potential seat at the government table? Uh, it's not there yet. It's it not there. Like, it's not there yet. Oh, well, we're going to get there. Yeah, uh, we're gonna, in Uganda. It's it's coming. I mean, we we started working in Uganda less than two years ago, and the the president of Uganda is about to come out to the land when I bring Manny Pacquiao, who's going to no be president kidding. of the Philippines. It's like, wait, what? How did this happen? You know, a boxer gives fifty thousand dollars. He's world champion. He's running. He's already senator, governor in Philippines. He's running for president of the Philippines. He wants to come see the houses that he helped build. He built 10 of them, 10 of the 32. And so we want him to come to the land, and then the president of Uganda is going to come to the land, and then the king of the pygmies in Uganda is there on our land. That's who we're building homes for. We're like, you're a king and you don't have a home? Mm. Like, that's crazy, right? Who, how, have you ever met a king or heard of a king without a castle? You know, a king without a home. You know, that's crazy. And uh, so being able to unite them together to fight for a common problem, common good. Uh, Incredible. Yeah. I mean, they're going to have, they already have a seat at the table. Um, not at the, on the governmental level nationwide, but state statewide, they already do. Um, so yeah, it's coming. Amazing. Yeah. Another story of overcoming. Mm-hmm. So we started this conversation <clears throat> by talking about your background a little bit yeah. and how you personally are, uh, resilient. I mean, yeah. you use that word for yourself. I, I mean, I said that's the first thing I think of when I Thanks. think of you. Thank you. Then I go into like ten other things that are yeah. just incredible. But, um, but your story is one of resilience and overcoming. Yeah. Uh, the people that you have um, connected with, mm. um, adopted personally, their story is one of overcoming. Yeah, for sure. Um, we are trying to help people overcome right. in our state, overcoming poverty yeah. and childhood trauma and those sorts of things. And um, I'm wondering, trying to learn from people who have that experience and that it's almost, it's. I hate to use the word grit because that's seemingly overused a no, little bit no, these no, no, days, no, but, but what are the, what are the characteristics that you see you can talk about other people. You can talk about the big yeah, You can talk about yourself. I, I know but the one I see most. I, I know the one I see most. What's that? Reasons. Reasons. And what I mean by that is the person with the most reasons usually wins. And if you can remind yourself of all your reasons, you can get through anything. The people that starve or give up or turn around. I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and we had a couple of people turn around. There was a professional athlete that turned around. I won't say his name, but it's like you've been at the highest level of your sport and you turned around. It was an injury. We had another guy that got, you know, banged up and he was uh, an amputee or had been missing some toes and he, he was he was not doing well. So he had to turn around. That was a medical reason. The other was a mental reason. The other was the guy came unprepared. He didn't train uh, at high altitude. He didn't have the right hiking equipment. I mean, he didn't break in his boots until the day of. He didn't put on his boots until his first climb up the mountain. Didn't have outdoor wear, really. He had, like, cotton sweatpants. And when you sweat, that absorbs, you know, cotton, and that freezes. So he put himself at a disadvantage by not being prepared because if you fail to prepare, you almost plan to fail, right? And so, um, in certain ways. And so, and then he was, I was telling everyone, as you take another step higher and it gets harder and the air gets thinner, like you're going to have to remind yourself of the reason why you're doing this. You're not doing this just to get to the top and get a cool view. You're doing this to challenge yourself and to overcome because every footstep we take, I raised $2.00. Almost raising the bar, raising the reasons. I raised two dollars for every foot of elevation we climbed, nineteen thousand three hundred forty-one feet. We raised like thirty-eight thousand something, six hundred and eighty-two dollars or something. For me, 
that was my own personal raise. So now I have supporters that are saying they're sponsoring this amount that I'm climbing. It's like, man, every footstep, I know another $2, $4, $6, $8. This is going towards a water well or more, more than one water well. Uh, so I guess the reason I bring that up is we got a guy named Zach Bitter. He's about to run across America for us. He's running from the Brooklyn Bridge to the Golden Gate Bridge. Yes, I said running across, mm-hmm. not walking across, not biking across. He is running across America, going to run 70 to 80 miles per day. Wow. Per day. He has the six world records right now, uh, currently. He's not really past things. He, he currently owns the world record, six of them, uh, for the 100-mile race. Uh, he During COVID, he was going to try to run – the Nordic track or something like that, a uh, hundred miles, the fastest one to ever do it. Uh, his Nordic track broke. They souped it up. They souped it up and it couldn't go hundred miles. He jumped on another one and that one kind of was wonky. And so I think he set the record or maybe he needs to do it again because there aren't really machines made mm. to go a hundred miles as fast as he does. Um, there, you know, people run 20 miles and it needs to cool down. You know, he's overheating these machines. But he runs with a, for a purpose. A purpose. That's what I was going to bring up. He said he wanted to do this trans, Transamerica or Transatlantic, uh, not Transatlantic, Transamerica run, Transam run, whatever it's called, and cross America. He said it. he's wanted to do it the last six years. He became a donor of ours about two years ago. He said, now I have a reason. Mm-hmm. He's gone on Joe Rogan's twice to talk about it. He's going to go on there a third time. Uh, I might go on it with him before, and then he'll go on it after, or maybe I go on after. It's going to be part of a docu-series we're doing. And he goes, man, I needed the reason. And so him and I spoke at a sports, like, for athletes together. And I got to interview him. And I'm like, dude, tell us, tell us your reasons. Because whenever you're running 100 miles and you're pushing your body to that, whenever you think you can't even really run a marathon, or you run one marathon, now you know, maybe I can do two. You do two, you're like, can I do three? Can I do more than three marathons in a day? You know, that's 100 miles. <laughs> God. That's crazy. More than a, more than. And three how many marathons. days in a row doing that? It's not just yeah, one yeah, day, yeah, right? Yeah, if he's yeah, running across yeah. the country, that's incredible. Well, it's going to take him six to eight weeks. Oh he's my doing goodness. it in like September. So I think that we can take stuff from the physical and apply it to mental, emotional, uh, spiritual. Um, ice baths. I mean, anyone listening to this, please know self-care isn't selfish and you will burn out if you don't take care of yourself. Uh, I've done it. Uh, I, thought I, I thought I wouldn't. I remember whenever you were coming in on this, uh, I was like, we've got to talk about burnout. You know, I see people doing it. Then all of a sudden I burn out. Yeah, really. And uh, uh, I, I do ice baths now. And ice baths are good physically for your body, for inflammation, things like that, right? I used to do it during fight camp. But now I do it daily. When I'm in Austin, I do it daily if I can. And some days are tougher than others. But I sit in that thing for at least, it's coldest ice bath in the world. It's the Rolls Royce, Royce of ice baths. The chunks that float up to the top are about six to eight inches thick. But you sit on a, you sit on a layer, a base of ice. So it's floating up around your neck and you're sitting on ice, a layer of ice. And it's below 32 degrees. And so I do that because it's also training your vagus nerve, your vagus nerve with your parasympathetic nervous system. What that does is it literally starts to train physical and mental resilience in your body. And so you're literally training resilience like it's a, like it's a muscle, like you go to the gym, like you go for a run. Now you sit in the cold. And it wakes you up. It helps mental health. Like it's one of the best things you do for mental health is an ice bath. Mm. Ice bath, float tanks. Now you don't need depression medication. Literally, you don't need it if you're That's doing incredible. both of those. Yeah, you get the same benefit as you do taking your meds. I've done an but, ice bath. It's it's a little cold. Yeah, right. Like yeah. I know that's like intuitive. We know yeah, that. Yeah. But it's amazing that you do that every day. Yeah. Try to at least three minutes. Um, and the wow. reason I can go up to ten. And then I have friends that come over. They're rock stars in life, incredible business people. Mm-hmm. They're studs. And they sit in it. The cold takes their breath away. Mm-hmm. And they only make it a minute and they jump out. And I, I, I've never had a girl fail. 
No one. I had one that said, oh, I'm going to get out. But it's whenever you cannot get out of your body or out of your head and into your body Mm -hmm. because they start to worry. They start to panic. They think their heart's going too fast. Maybe it's going to stop that they can't breathe, uh, that it hurts too much. It feels like nails going into their skin. Uh, their toes are getting numb. Maybe they're going to lose them with hypothermia. It's all this head stuff. And I'm like, and, and they're going, <laughs> and, and my friend that has a whoop, the first time he did it, he went to like 150 something heart rate, mm. 150 something. Whenever I got him to get back in there a second time, he didn't go over like 108. It, it averaged at like 105. So he trained his he body. He trained to his be body. Resilient. Hey, breathe. Slow That's your breathing down. And whenever you do that, you're able to now head into other more stressful situations and handle those more adequately. You handle them with a with a literal cool or calm yeah, right. calmness, like a grace. That makes like total an, sense. Yeah. So uh, in our agency, we are what we call a hope-centered organization. Yeah. And um, there are three essential elements to the equation of hope. The first is the ability to set goals. Yeah. So that goal-setting component that there's something out there that's greater that I want greater than today. Mm-hmm. The second is pathways. And that is uh, the, the that I can see that place and I can see a way for me to get there. Mm-hmm. But the third is one that we, I've struggled with. We, I, we've, we're figuring out how to develop those in the people that we serve. Yeah. But this, I think, really connects to the, the third, which is willpower. Mm. So yeah, yeah, I can yeah. see where I want to go. <laughs> I can see a path and I can see this commitment to getting there. Yeah. And really this concept of a purpose behind mm. it is you, you really uh, honestly just sort of enlightened me. Of, I mean, I sort of knew about that and we've talked about purpose before, but in the context of trying to serve um, really people who have suffered from severe trauma or whatever, if we can build the purpose yeah. and the, the why behind mm-hmm. their, that pathway yeah. and the goal, then yeah. maybe that's how you develop the commitment. Yes. Commitment, purpose, meaning, reasons, Willpower. Will be willpower. Mm-hmm. But I think I think willpower you have to be a little not careful with, but strategic with. Um, willpower, especially for an addict, but I also think from someone going through depression. Mm. The reason I can say this is because I've gone through these things. Um, I have experience there. And a lot of people that are addicts or uh, depressed, mental health things, they don't think they're as resilient as they are, although they are. Addicts are some of the most resilient people in the world. People who have overcome suicide are some of the most resilient people in the world. Anyone listening to this has literally survived, um, overcome 100% of their darkest days. Like, you really have. Like, you made it. Like, you didn't succumb to that. You didn't give up. You didn't Mm -hmm. die. Like, you rose above. Even if it was just through sheer, like, suffering through it and like not enjoying it like you still did it you overcame so the reason i say willpower is a little like i think pairing that underneath it like really articulating well that it comes from reasons purpose why um and that will help your willpower because i feel like some people get depleted or defeated or discouraged even by that word you got to have more willpower. The person that suffers with a food addiction, they don't think they have willpower. A person that suffers with depression and isolation and anxiety, they don't think they have much willpower because they didn't do this or conquer the day or whatever. So I think also saying, yeah, we're going to develop willpower and resilience and grit, but the way you do that is by being vulnerable and by showing up even on the days you don't want to. Because you you know this matters that it has developing meaning and that, reasons yep, yeah that purpose yeah so that's just the one thing I remember at 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 rehab they're like you addicts don't ha- like you you don't have enough willpower to overcome you got to have community reasons love uh, uh, tactics in that way that you support to where it doesn't rely on willpower it relies more on like the the necessity to to uh, stay sober, like without it, I'm, like the consequence almost too. The reason, the reasons, like I want to live a better life, but also the consequences, like I won't have much of a life to live if I don't overcome. Absolutely. Well, you you helped me fill in, on, honestly, a component to a this sort of equation that we're trying to build, hmm. or I'm trying to build in, in my mind, 
uh, around Great. around removing barriers that allow people to become successful. Yeah. So thank you for that. Um, sure, thank you. I want to I want to wrap by saying yeah. uh, thank you, of course, yeah. for being here. Um, thank you for who you are. I, I would tell you every time we're together, I am honored by mm. the human being that is sitting in front of me wow. uh, or next to me thank in you. some cases. Yeah. And um, I know your heart and it's a true commitment mm. to serving uh, those who are forgotten. And uh, there needs to be people, more people like you, but I think you are um, elevating the concerns of, of folks who never have the voice that you mentioned. So thank yeah. you for that. You. Um, how can people uh, engage with you or learn yeah. more? What's, uh, what's uh, the proper if, way? If they're able to support or want to get behind the work, it's fightfortheforgotten.org. Fightforthefreon.org, and we're really pushing our, our fight club. We've had, you know, thousands of donors from all 50 states and 60 countries. But what we found out uh, through some business coaching for us to grow and be sustainable and scale and impact the people we really want to impact and serve them in the best way possible, uh, we need, like, monthly support. So that's our fight club. Um, it can be $5 a month. But if we can grow that to where, on average, we have $30 a month coming in from an army of thousands of people – we'll be able to really grow and maintain and uh, yeah, not just maintain, but to do more than we ever thought possible. So that's what we're really looking for, uh, hopefully by support, but also supporting through following our journey, either at fight for the forgotten on Instagram or mine at the big pygmy. You can also search my name, Justin Wren, W R E N. But uh, the big pygmy is uh, the big and a P Y G M Y. So man, brother, I love you. I'm so grateful to be here. You too, my friend. Yeah. I'm, uh, again, honored by uh, you as a friend and the work that you're doing and thankful for the impact and uh, looking forward to the next time we're together. Yeah. Thank you.